0: the live stream and it's good for us to gather particularly on this evening as we think about this weekend and as i was praying about and considering this evening and uh, the message and what to talk about i thought it would be appropriate for us to read the narrative of jesus's crucifixion in luke 23 And then what I'd like to do is walk alongside Luke as he takes us through this event that happened in the year 33 A.D. And as we go through the narrative, I ask you to put yourself there. You're in the crowd watching what's going on. But unlike everyone else who was there at that time, you already know what is going to happen. You know the truth of why this is happening. You know who Jesus is and what he accomplished on this Friday in 33 AD. So as I read the narrative, think about what Jesus is willingly submitting himself to. Think about what he freely agrees to allow happen to him, the God-man, So that your sin can be covered. So that you can know His Father like He knows His Father. Luke chapter 23. Luke records this. Then the whole body of them got up and brought Him before Pilate. And they began to accuse Him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the King. So Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him, and he said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people. He's teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and hoping to see some sign performed by him. And so he questioned him at some length, and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests And the scribes, they were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? what evil has this man done i have found in him no guilt demanding death therefore i will punish him and release him but they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail and pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted and he released the man that they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed him on the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do not know these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, where they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at Him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to the plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have heard your word and as we look at your word now that what we know not you would teach us what we have not you would give us and what we are not you would make us for the glory of your son in your name amen i want to walk through this narrative this evening we're not going to look at every single verse uh, of course but I want to walk through and again, I would ask you to put yourself in the narrative thinking about what Jesus willingly submitted himself to so that your sin can be covered. So that you can know his father like he knows his father. In verse 1, Luke begins the trial by emphasizing that the whole Sanhedrin, the whole body of them, delivered Jesus to Pilate. The entirety of the Sanhedrin is emphasized in verse 1. But it doesn't mean absolute unanimity. We see at the end of the narrative that Joseph of Arimathea was not supportive of doing this to Jesus. We see in John 19, Nicodemus as well is named as an exception. But the entirety, the majority of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body, wanted Jesus to be put to death. They did not have the authority to do this on their own. This was the authority of the Roman prefect. And so they bring him to Pilate. In verses 2 through 5, if you're familiar with this literary term, it's a chiasm. And this is, this is what we see in verses 2 through 5. You have an accusation from the Sanhedrin. Then Pilate answers questions. Jesus answers Pilate declares him innocent, and then you have some intense accusation, continued intense accusation from the Sanhedrin. So you have the Sanhedrin accusing, Pilate asking questions, Jesus answers, Pilate says he's innocent, and the Sanhedrin continues to accuse him, this time even more vehemently, more aggressively, more intensely. In verse 2, the Sanhedrin began to accuse Jesus, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation and opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and claiming to be Messiah, a king. I find it interesting that these accusations that the Sanhedrin presents to Pilate are so different from the accusations that they make against Jesus himself. You see how political they are. They don't care about being right. They don't care about truth. Excuse me. They don't care about truth. They care about being right. They don't care about whether this man could be who he says he is. They want their power. They want their po- their political position, their position of power to not be jeopardized. In verse 2, This man, that statement, this man is put at the beginning of the verse for emphasis. It's a way, really a derogatory way. Instead of addressing him by his name, Jesus, they say this man. It's a way of speaking of him without speaking his name. They accuse Jesus of being an agitator. They accused Jesus of being one who misleads the Jews, those who are under Roman occupation. And certainly it is true that Jesus, especially early in His ministry, attracted large crowds in Galilee. But there is zero evidence that He used or intended to use His influence to incite the people to rebellion. Why did Jesus come? Why did he leave the throne of heaven, take on human flesh, to live here on earth? Why did Jesus come? He told Zacchaeus. He told Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, in Luke 19. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, those who are lost. This is why he came. Seek and to save those who are lost. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he wrote about many Jews who claimed to be leaders and kings and prophets and revolutionaries and messiahs. Jesus was not the first. There were many that came before Him who claimed to have authority. There were many who came before Jesus who did in fact want to overthrow Roman rule. And this is interesting. In Josephus' history, he writes that none of these individuals, none of these individuals who came before Jesus, whether they claimed to be a king, or whether they claimed to be the Messiah, or whether they wanted to overthrow Roman rule, or whether they claimed to be a prophet, none of these men were given a trial. Why, in God's providence, did God cause a trial for Jesus Especially when it was such an exception. Why did God in his providence cause there to be a trial for Jesus? We're going to see this as we continue through the text. In verse 3, Pilate asks Jesus a question. Very straightforward. Are you the king of the Jews? And, And Jesus answers, You have said so. This answer of Jesus is verbatim in all four Gospels. In fact, the title affixed to Jesus' cross is also verbatim in all four Gospels. The King of the Jews. The Gospel trial narrative suggests that Pilate suspected, or maybe it's a better way to say the religious leaders encouraged him to suspect that Jesus came to reestablish Israel's kingship, to overthrow Rome. That is what the Sanhedrin was encouraging Pilate to think that Jesus would rival the Roman prefect. And so in verse 3, Pilate asks Jesus directly, are you king? And Jesus answers directly, it is as you say. He says, yes. And then a trial begins. Pilate doesn't go right away to sentencing. A trial begins. So, why in God's providence did he cause a trial for Jesus when this was the complete exception to what happened to any man who came before him? So that verse 4 would occur. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. So verse 14 occurs again. Again, no guilt. So that verse 15 occurs. Nor has Herod found anything deserving death. In verse 20, Pilate wants to release Jesus because he finds no guilt. A third time in verse 22, Pilate says, I have found him, I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Pilate The judge in this trial of Jesus declares publicly that Jesus has no guilt. God causes a trial for Jesus so that what is true will be proclaimed by the judge. Jesus has no guilt. John 8.46 Jesus says this, Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? In Hebrews chapter 7, the author writes, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. What kind of high priest do we have that was on this cross? The author of Hebrews says, Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Peter in 1 Peter 2 writes, Jesus who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Luke mentions that Herod did not, he also did not find anything deserving death. In verse 8, Luke tells us that Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He was, in fact, for quite a while, he was looking forward to seeing Jesus. Herod is intrigued by Jesus. This is different from faith in Jesus. Allegiance, loyalty to Jesus, is not what Herod had. He was intrigued by him. In verse 11. Herod treated Jesus with contempt and he mocked Him. Again, Peter in 1 Peter 2 writes, And Jesus, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. But He continued to entrust Himself to Him who judges righteously, His Heavenly Father. Jesus continues to willingly submit Himself so that your sin can be covered, so that you can know His Father like He knows His Father. In verse 16, Pilate says, Jesus has no guilt, nothing deserving death, but to appease you, Jewish religious leaders, I will punish Him before I release Him. Luke doesn't record all of the detail about the punishment, but other gospel writers do. Here's what John records in John 19. Pilate then took Jesus and whipped him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown made of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. And they came up to His face and mocked Him. They mocked Him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they proceeded to slap Him in the face. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, 5. In verse 21, they continued calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. Crucifixion was a specific Roman form of execution. It was notorious for two things, pain and shame. In Judaism, hanging someone on a tree was a sign that the victim was cursed by God. This is what Jesus willingly submits himself to for you and for me. In calling for Jesus' crucifixion, the crowd designates Jesus as an enemy of both the Jews and the Gentiles. They call him an enemy. In verse 24, after Pilate continues to release Jesus, he acquiesces and pronounces sentence, punishment. Now notice this. Pilate does not pronounce Jesus guilty. Luke records that he pronounces sentence. He pronounces punishment. He pronounces sentence on an innocent man. He pronounces sentence on a man that he finds no guilt. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus is now being led to his crucifixion. And Luke records that he continues to focus on others. Jesus, as he's being led to his crucifixion, continues to have compassion on other people. In verse 34, Jesus prays to His Father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is a spiritual, eternal drama that is being played out. And they do not believe that they are putting to death Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, they do not believe. In First Corinthians 2, Paul writes, The wisdom which none of the rulers of the age of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood who he is, they wouldn't have crucified him. But they didn't believe. They were in unbelief. Yet all of this continued to fulfill prophecy. Prophecy which was given by the living God. Like the prophet Isaiah about 700 years beforehand. I'd encourage you to read Isaiah 53 alongside Luke 23. Read those two chapters alongside each other. See how this is being fulfilled. God's word is being fulfilled in what happens. In verse 33, Jesus has now been crucified. He's been nailed to the cross. I noticed in verse 35 the rulers request for Jesus to prove that he is the Christ. I certainly don't think it's a sincere request. I think it's in the form of mocking. But they request that he prove that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And they say, let him save himself if he is the Christ. If he's the Christ, he should be able to save himself. In verse 37, the soldiers say, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Show us. In verse 39, one of the criminals, mocking, says, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. And us too while you're at it. He will prove he is Messiah. He will prove that he is God's chosen one if he saves himself. I was thinking about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4. It was also all about self. That Jesus would take action so that he could be fed. That Jesus would take action so that he would be served. That Jesus would take action so that he would be saved. Feed self. Serve self. Save self. The temptation in the wilderness was all about self. The taunts on the cross we're also all about self. I worship Jesus. And I thank Jesus. Because He is not about self. And I want to become more like Jesus. And I need to be transformed to be like Jesus. Because I am way too much about self but I'm saved because he isn't and he wasn't on that cross he loves his father Jesus loves his father and he loves his brothers and sisters in the flesh He willingly submits Himself to this suffering so that your sin can be covered. So that you can know His Father like He knows His Father. Verse 41. The other criminal says, We are suffering justly. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. Is Jesus' punishment and death unjust? Is Jesus' punishment and death unjust? It's not unjust. It is love. It is love. Maybe you say, but Pilate crucified an innocent man. But Jesus said to Pilate in John 19, you have no power over me if it were not given from above. The reality of the cross, the reality of the cross is that justice was served. Eternal justice. God's justice a payment for sin had to be made. In God's justice, a payment for my sin had to be made. Someone had to make that payment. You can't make it for me. I can't make it for you. There was only one who could make that payment for me. And I'm so thankful he did. Jesus in love made this payment. Even though he has done nothing wrong, he satisfies God's justice so that you and I do not receive justice for our sin. He satisfied justice so we don't face justice. What does Jesus' payment on the cross accomplish? He satisfies God's justice. And what does this mean? We see it in verses 41 to 43. In verses 41 and 42, we see a seed of faith. We see a seed of faith in one of the criminals. We see confession of sin. We see belief. We see trust in Jesus. We see trust that Jesus is innocent and that Jesus has the power to save him. In verse 43, we also see that we will be with Him in paradise. We will be with Jesus in paradise if we have faith, if we believe. This is what Jesus has accomplished on the cross in satisfying God's justice. In verses 44... And 45, it was now about the sixth hour. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. What what is happening here? Luke does not include, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't include that, but those are words that Jesus said. What is happening in verses 44 and 45 between the 6th hour and the ninth hour, between noon and 3 o'clock, when the sun is darkened, when darkness falls over the whole land, what is happening here is this. The wrath of God is poured out on Jesus for sin. God the Father, I was listening to R.C. Sproul preach on this this afternoon. God the Father was indignant toward His Son. This is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father, He didn't just ignore His Son, He was indignant toward His Son. This is what Jesus willingly submitted Himself to for you and for me. The indignity of His Father. He had a perfect, loving relationship with His Father from eternity past. But not for those three hours. He suffered the full wrath of God. and I can't even begin to imagine how to express that. Darkness at midday. Supernatural darkness. A picture of divine judgment. There are two curtains, two veils in the temple. Luke doesn't say which veil tore. The word the Gospel writers choose to describe this curtain is also used in Hebrews. It's the only other place that it's used. And it's used in Hebrews in reference to the inner curtain. The one that gives access to the Holy of Holies. Where the presence of God resides. Contextually and theologically, it is acknowledged that this was the curtain that was torn in two. It symbolizes... Direct access to God because of the high priest who just sacrificed his own body on the cross. Who shed his blood so that we could have direct access to the Father. As I was reading, it seems that historians had a consensus that, depending on the severity of the flogging, the severity of the flogging before they would be crucified on the cross, depending on that severity, some victims survived even up to several days. There weren't any major arteries or organs um, that are severed when a person is put on a cross. So death does not come by blood loss, but from shock or exhaustion or suffocation or dehydration or heart failure or some combination of that. And so people will survive on the cross for days if they don't have too severe of a flogging beforehand. Jesus wasn't on the cross for days wasn't even on the cross for a whole day he was on the cross for hours so i i don't know exactly the kind of flogging that he willingly submitted himself to but it must have been pretty significant jesus willingly submits himself to a beating so severe You will die within a couple of hours. That God's Messiah would suffer a cross of shame. That's what the author of Hebrews said. It was a cross of shame. That God's Son, God's Messiah, my King who sits on the throne, that He would suffer this cross of shame. This was scandalous. This is why Paul writes a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be a scandal. Jesus Jesus willingly allowed himself to be a scandal at his birth, being born out of wedlock. Jesus allowed himself to be a scandal at his death on a cross of shame. verse 46, Jesus' final words. His final breath. And he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. Demonstrating his steadfast trust and confidence in his father. Jesus submits to his father in life. And he trusts his father in his death. He submits to his father in life. And he trusts his father in death. It's a contrast to his relative silence before the Sanhedrin. He didn't say much to them. He was relatively silent to Herod and to Pilate. One commentator wrote, and I'm like, you know, this is pretty interesting. I, I, I think that it would be true... Often, the final words or the final speeches of somebody who has declared themselves to be innocent but is falsely accused, what do they generally do in their final words or their final speech? Isn't it to proclaim their innocence? Jesus' last words are intercessory. Jesus' last words are on behalf of others. And isn't this his life? isn't this who he is? He bears the grief of the mourning women. He prays for the forgiveness of those who kill and mock him. He assures a repentant criminal of salvation. And he finally entrusts himself confidently into the hands of his Father. How then shall we live? shall we live, we who are in Christ. He died to give us life so that we can live in Him. Jesus, the one who forgives and gives grace, even gives His life and calls people who have done wicked, sinful, horrible things, He calls them, He calls me to come. To come to Him. He could have saved Himself. Jesus could have saved Himself. And he willingly chose not to. So you may have peace with the Father. So you may know the Father. In verse 50 and following Joseph of Arimathea, again, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but a righteous man, waiting for the kingdom of God through the Messiah, he takes Jesus' dead body, wraps it in a linen cloth, lays him in a tomb cut into a rock, a cave, essentially. It was Friday toward evening, sunset, kind of of like now. The Sabbath was about to begin. And on Sabbath they rested according to the commandment and they worshipped God. So let us let us quiet our hearts. Let us quiet our hearts and worship God and His Son, Jesus Christ. As we think about what Jesus has suffered and accomplished for us on the cross, let our hearts worship Him. Jesus, Jesus the cross, Because Jesus paid it all for me at the cross. I want to worship Him. I want to worship Him more and more purely. I want to live for Him. I want to live for Him in a more holy and righteous way. What He has given me, I want to give back to Him. He's given us who are in Christ. He has given us life. Give Him your life in worship. In worship. This Friday in 33 AD is what we remember. It's what we celebrate. As we accept Jesus' invitation to come to the table to feast with him. It is somber to think of Jesus' death on a cross. The God-man flogged and crucified. It is in gratitude I think about life which he has given to me in him. Who are you in this narrative? Who are you? Are you like the religious leaders? You know who Jesus says that He is. But you refuse to believe. You refuse to give loyalty to Him. To follow Him. Are you like Pilate? You do not believe Jesus is guilty of doing anything wrong. But the encouragement of others causes you to follow the crowd and not Jesus. Are you like Herod? You're intrigued by Jesus, but no faith in Him. Are you like the criminal who mocks Jesus? When you are with friends, you go along with their mocking. you like the criminal who says i deserve to suffer punishment but you jesus do not i confess i turn from my sin and i trust in you by faith that you have done everything necessary to save me and i trust that you remember me as you are sitting next to your father The Lord's table is for believers. Believers who have trusted in Jesus like this second criminal. This second criminal was guilty. He was still on a cross. The criminal's cross, though, did not satisfy God's eternal justice. This criminal who was on the cross, his suffering on the cross, he suffered on the cross too. But it didn't satisfy God's eternal justice. But that man next to Him. That man next to Him. Jesus the Christ. The Son of God. Jesus' cross paid the criminal's eternal penalty. Jesus' death satisfied God's eternal justice. We remember. We worship. We worship Jesus Christ. So come. Come with confidence to His table. Men, if you would please come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's table.